0: This is React Podcast, I'm fantastic Today we get to sit down with Jen Luker. She's one of my favorite people to see around the halls of a conference because she's a joy to be around and she's always knitting. And yes, if you haven't been to a developer conference, that is an extremely rare sight. But not so at the 2018 React Conf where right in the lobby, they had set up a fiber arts corner. Knitting and yarn making and cross stitching were all happening through the duration of the conference. It was absolutely incredible. And this was because of Jen. So today we're talking about how that came to be and the unconventional history that textiles and programming share. Jen also knows a tremendous amount about accessibility. So in the second half of the episode, we talk about accessibility, and a strategy that anyone at any company could start to employ. A big, big thanks to Jen this week because she was extremely sick when we sat down to record this episode. I'm very grateful that she decided to power through and I think you will be too. This episode of React Podcast is brought to you by React Training. They provide in-person, hands-on training for development teams. Those trainings are taught by industry experts and community leaders. For more information, visit reacttraining.com. Jen, I am super excited to be sitting with you. You were the first person when I found out I was coming to React Conf that I was like, I have to sit down with Jen. It's, it's time for us to talk. So how are you enjoying yourself this far in the conference?
1: I'm having a blast. <laughs> I'm having so much fun. I love this conference.
0: Now you're doing super something super unique that I've never seen before, never heard of before. Uh, tell me what you're doing at this
1: conference. So this is the first conference that I've ever heard of as well that has decided to have a fiber arts circle uh, which is amazing. Essentially, what they're doing is that during the breaks, during the conference in general, there's a couple of tables that are set up with, you know, a lot of yarn. And I brought my spinning wheels and I brought drop spindles and I saw some tools. knitting kits. Oh, yes. I brought Notions kits and <laughs> knitting needles and coupons for discounts for more yarn. When I hook you in, I really hook you in.
0: (laughs) It seems like a good thematic uh, fit for this conference where hooks kind of have taken center stage.
1: It does. Hooks with crocheting, (laughs) uh, hooking yarn so that you can pull it through another loop for knitting, Uh, hooks that I use to uh, capture yarn and pull it through my my spinning wheels, (laughs) and not only the, the hook fashion, but there's also, going back to pre-hooks where it was fiber arts and react fiber so we're here <laughs> wow. sitting and talking about react while we're playing with yarn it's, it's been really so fun.
0: it's knit together in ways that i couldn't have anticipated
1: oh goodness this is <laughs> gonna be fun isn't it
0: <laughs> so how has the response been to to this kind of alternative way of experiencing uh, a conference
1: I thought it was going to be bigger at first, uh-huh. and then I hoped it was going to be smaller because budget-wise, I only put together so many learn-to-knit kits. Uh-huh. Uh, and then when the conference started, it was really quiet. It was dead quiet for that first phase. And then the next uh, session ended up having a couple people come over, okay, uh, staying for a few minutes and then moving on, but one person like, sat and stayed and really got into it. And then there were two of us. And we were hanging out, learning how to spin. And then she said that she wanted to knit. And before it there were three people and then there was like five people. And then we had to pull over another table because there were seven people. And we brought over a few more and a couple other people just came and sat down to hang out and chill for a while and then move on. And it's been Really fun. I've created at least one new knitter and a new crocheter. Awesome. I have two more that are just about to learn to knit. I've had someone try spinning, which has been fantastic. Awesome. So, and it's been a lot of conversations, not just about knitting, not just about React, but how, you know, knitting and and programming in general (laughs) actually tie together.
0: I want to talk to that before that. Has it been mostly first timers? Have there have there been a lot of people who have stopped by that are kind of old hat at this? What's the what's the mix been? I've had both.
1: Okay, I've had people go, I heard this was going to be a thing and I brought my project. (laughs) Awesome. Like, here it is. This is what I'm doing. Let's share. And it's a very niggly thing to do. Um, And I've also had other people that are just like, you know, I've always kind of wondered about it, wonder, you know, wanted to learn. Uh, I'm like, sure, let's, let's cover it. And then I've had people say, I want to do this thing. And I heard this is happening. If I bring all my stuff, will you teach me? Awesome. So I've even had people come over like with the intention to learn
0: that's amazing and I I love that it's so well integrated um I guess just to paint a picture for anyone who's listening to this there's um there's a gigantic TV kind of in off to the side of like the kind of like foyer area where everyone gathers there's a big TV all the the, the talks on there they mm-hmm. have the teleprompter person working so you can kind of engage with the the speaking portion of the conference mm-hmm. while you're learning to knit or kind of tune out I guess if you want to mm-hmm. and it's It's super awesome.
1: I've actually heard a couple of people say, now this is how you should experience a conference. (laughs) I'm sitting at this table from now on. Yeah. Yeah. Cozier chairs.
0: So how did you come up with the idea? How did you propose it? What what was the backstory of this?
1: You know, the backstory is actually that I didn't propose it. The backstory is that they were brainstorming ideas for things they could do as part of this conference. And they thought about knitting and they thought about React. And because it's knitting and React... They thought about me. So they're like, you know, Jen, we're throwing this idea around about having a knitting circle. What do you think? What do I think? What do I think? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm like, you know, knitting is great, but there's also crocheting and cross stitching. Oh, yeah. There's a woman over there who's cross stitching with yarn right now. It's amazing. (laughs) So, you know, there's cross stitching. There's embroidery. There's drawing. Someone asked if they could bring their drawing. I'm like, paper's a fiber. (laughs) Bring it along. Bring anything that's portable that you can manage to stuff in your suitcase. Bring your crafts. You know, it's a way to connect on a different level. Yeah. So I started saying, as opposed to a knitting circle, let's do a fiber art circle. One to play on fiber <laughs> and to to make it a lot more inclusive. Yeah. You know, to yeah, think yeah. about it differently. Yeah. So with that, I've had a lot of people come up with a whole sort of different things. So it's been really, it's been really fun. To do that's that. awesome. And. When, as soon as I said, that's a really great idea. It should be a fiber art circle instead of a knitting circle. They're like, great. So here's your flight and here's your hotel room.
0: Oh, my gosh. I'm like,
1: oh, well, I guess I just committed.
0: <laughs> yes. Didn't even get a chance to back out. That's nope. the best way to go. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm so happy. Like, It makes me so happy to see it. We actually just did a Periscope where we kind of, like, toured everything that you got set up over there. It was super fun. It was. It's it's the funnest corner of the conference right now.
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> so I'm going to have to go over there and learn something one of these minutes. I just hate the feeling that my brain has when I'm learning something for the first time, especially something physical, but... I'm sure you'll make it easy for me.
1: I will do the best that I can. <laughs> Some people are having a little bit easier time than others. Yes. And it's almost always about persistence, and it doesn't take long before it becomes muscle memory. Yeah. So it's definitely something you need to stick with for at least 15 minutes before you can genuinely say, I'm willing to keep trying or I'm so done. I am i can't even. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I might have to. I'll, I should probably start today and then uh, maybe sleep on it so my mind can like work it out and then... I don't know. Let's see how I do tomorrow.
1: That'd be fun. I've <laughs> have I have people knitting today that are just knitting a little square, just to practice and nice. learn some things. Tomorrow we're knitting beanies.
0: Oh, nice! Yeah, nice. A very practical uh, first knitting job.
1: No one likes potholders, but a hat you can you can use a hat after yeah, yeah, that. Even yeah. a really crappy hat you can use a hat after that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I learned recently. I I just listened to a ninety nine percent invisible episode. And they're doing a series on clothes. And the first one was about textiles. Yes. And I learned something that I had not known before, which is some of the first patented software was around textile creation. Yeah. So I imagine that you're you're familiar with this. So what do you know about this?
1: Okay. So it's not even software. It's technically hardware at this point. Okay. Based on the fact that... Uh, The original programs were written for something called jacquard looms. So when you're weaving yarn into fabric, what you're creating is uh, various patterns that create different pictures in that yarn, whether you're making polka dots or you're making something that looks plaid. Those are different patterns. And you have to have multiple yarns lifted so that you can put a shuttle underneath it that's carrying yarn in the opposite direction. Okay. So when you do that you have to actually program that in so you can either manually like put your fingers up underneath each yarn and pick it up and put the shuttle underneath okay or you can you put them through a heddle and the heddle is a like a flat board with holes in it so that you okay. can put one thread through a hole and the other thread through like a space in between the bits that have holes sure and this okay. is all
0: about like exposing that thread
1: right to make so a pattern that, right so that when you push down on the heddle all the ones that are just in the holes end up getting forced down okay leaving all the other threads up in the original position okay so you can put the shuttle through the yarn in order to create that color on that level yeah and then you lift the heddle up and all the yarns in the holes end up getting pulled higher And the original are down below now. So when you put the heddle or the shuttle through the other direction, it basically is
0: cross-counting
1: the layers of yarn, right? So to make a pattern, you could do something as simple, again, as every other one goes Mm -hmm. up and every other one goes down, and then you get the standard weave. But you can go ridiculously complicated. You could put in filigrees and horses and knights and whatnot. So you can really get complicated with these. So they created something called cards. Okay. And these cards had the pattern in it. So they would have spaces where a, a little hook would go through the hole in the card, grab the yarn, and pull it down.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Okay. And if there was no hole in the card, and these cards were originally made out of wood, you uh, the th- the needle itself couldn't go through the wood to go grab the thread to pull it down. Okay. So each card would have, and it's 80 characters wide each oh card, gosh. which is why we have 80 characters wide in our programming. Um. So it's 80 wide, and each one would go through and do this. So you have card after card after card after card. You could have one that's, 165,000 cards oh my for a pattern. So these cards all put together and sewn together in this fashion were what programmed the jacquard looms to make patterns without having to recreate each one every single time. And when you reach the end you just loop it back around again. That's so crazy. So that is what made patterns in fabric. So buying and selling this block of cards was literally buying and selling these software programs you could yeah
0: well this is their intellectual property effectively on these cards
1: absolutely they're completely programmed so these cards would get stolen (laughs) because this is like an, an official pattern that you can if it became popular it became like national security to protect these cards so that other places didn't steal them, right? So it was a really big deal. Those cards are exactly what we used when it came to programming computers. When we're talking about punch card programming, they look almost identical to the Jacquard Loom cards. It is the same concept. The concept of the needle can go through and grab a yarn or the transistor actually makes a connection because there's not a piece of paper in between. So the very first programs were for clothes, for fabric.
0: So that's the industry stuff. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your personal experience with uh, with knitting. How did you get into knitting?
1: So I've been crocheting since oh, crocheting. I was four. Sorry.
0: Sorry. I'm going to be very ignorant about oh, the terms so, terms. so crocheting so is the
1: one with the hook. Mm-hmm. Knitting is one with two needles that don't have a hook. Okay. All right. I started crocheting when I was four. Wow. Uh, My aunt taught me. I kind of picked it up and put it down and picked it up and put it down all the way through. And it never really quite stuck. And then I read this article once that said, if you wash the floor, a dog's going to run through and cover it with mud. If you wash your clothes, you're still going to have to wash clothes you're currently wearing. You do the dishes, you're going to have to eat again, and more dishes are just going to get dirty. Everything you do that day, you're just going to have to do again tomorrow. You have nothing to show for what you did today. If you knit or crochet or make one stitch for that day, you have something to show for it. Interesting. And at that moment, it stopped being about completing a project, and it started being about the process. Yeah. About the fact that today I've made my mark. Yeah. So when I started programming, it was shortly after I learned how to knit. Wow. And knitting really stuck with me. It was just like this magical moment of I found my thing. <laughs> programming was very much the same way, and it was at that moment when I realized that knitting is nothing but if-else statements and for loops and do-whiles, <laughs> which to us seem easy but to a new programmer seem kind of confusing. Which ones do you use? When would you use it? Why would you use it? Like, how do you use it? was really simple for me because of the fact that I've been looking at knitting patterns and they've got brackets around things. And then they say, anything inside this bracket, you're going to do three times. And then you're going to move on and do this other bracket portion five times. Or I need you to knit every stitch for the entire row. You know, so it's do this while you have a row.
0: So you were learning to program by... Learning to knit.
1: Yes. In fact, there are programs now that teach people in third world countries that don't have access to computers how to program by teaching them how to knit. (laughs) Dead serious. I think it's incredible. Yeah. Because the concepts are exactly the same. So essentially, knitting is a programming simulator.
0: Again, ignorant of all of this stuff, but I imagine that it's very like algorithmic, right? Like you, you, you have to do this, repeat this, and it's going to look like this, and do this, repeat this, and it's going to work like this. And if you do those together, they kind of compose in this way that looks like the thing that you want to make.
1: Exactly. And there's shaping, and there's adjustments, and there's fixing, and there's debugging. Oh, my gosh, is there debugging? (laughs) There's so many times where I'm like, well, I have the right stitch count, but this looks totally wrong. What did I do? You know, oh, look, I lost a stitch, and I created a new one somewhere. That's odd. (laughs)
0: So, are you able to back out in the same way when you're when you're knitting? What are the ways that you kind of correct your errors?
1: There's two ways. Okay. One, we call it frogging, and we call it frogging because you pull out your knitting needle and you grab the yarn and you rip it, rip it, rip it, sounding like a frog. Oh wow! Okay. (laughs) Okay, that's literally why it's called frogging. Um, The other way that you do it is called. essentially dropping down so usually when you make a mistake it's not on the row that you did or when you're trying to correct a mistake it's not on the row you're currently working okay it's on a row down or two or three or four or five so you're going to knit to that place where you've made a mistake further down the row you're going to drop your stitch and like um pick it all the way down to your mistake just that one stitch make your correction and then pick it up all the way back up and put it back on your needle. So you can either undo eight rows or you could just drop down eight rows on one stitch and fix it and break it back up. That's something you cannot do on crochet. If you make a mistake on crochet, you have to pull it back.
0: Has that influenced the way that you think about debugging computer programs?
1: It has. Partly because when you're looking at a problem, I really go for that binary model of pick a spot in the middle and see if it's still broken. And if it's still broken, then, you know, it's in that half. And pick a spot in the middle yeah. and see if it's still broken, right? Same thing with my knitting. I'll kind of look at it and go, okay, well, it's wrong. So let's pick a spot in the middle between here and the fir- last row and start counting and see where I messed up. If it's fine, then it's in the first half. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting how those two still overlap. It's, I've used debugging techniques from programming, in yeah. my knitting, and I've used knitting techniques that I've used to debug there in my programming.
0: So I love, when, I love hearing when things overlap in, in such an interesting interesting way. And we'll link a lot of those uh, things that we talked about. You, you gave a talk recently um, that really just kind of impacted me, um, and it was about accessibility. And you had a, a very interesting way of communicating uh, what a disability is is that totally reframed it in my mind and uh, I was hoping that you could talk to that a little bit
1: mm-hmm. so with disability the way that I always describe it in my talks is this mm-hmm. if you're in a wheelchair and you drive into a building and you need to get to the third floor if you're faced with nothing but stairs you're absolutely disabled mm-hmm. if however you ride into that same building and you have an elevator you can get to the third floor You can do what you need to take care of. It's not necessarily that it's you that's disabled. It's the technology surrounding you that makes you a disabled person. So uh, when you think about it that way, you're disabled when your eyes have been dilated or if Mm -hmm. you're playing with a four-year-old who thinks your arm is awesome and it's your mouse hand. (laughs) You are limited by these things. And it's not necessarily that you're permanently disabled. There's temporary and circumstantial disabilities. Yeah. You know, you could be disabled by the fact that you're in a noisy bar and you're trying to watch a video. Yeah, Based on these things, it means that as long as you're capable of completing the tasks that you need to, what makes you disabled and what makes you not disabled isn't solely within your body. Yeah. It is also the technology and the infrastructure surrounding you. Yeah, And if you have that support through that infrastructure and that technology, then you're capable of interacting the same way that everyone else can. And therefore, your disability stops being an impairment and starts being another thing that you deal with, like <laughs> yeah. glasses or, you know, hearing aids. They're just made to augment something that we, by nature, weren't given, you know, the best of to begin with. Yeah.
0: I love this idea. I love the reframing that, that you did for this idea because it, it, I think that there is a tendency, no matter what, to think about like, like us versus them. Right, and I, I, you see that a lot in in our work and the discussions when we talk about accessibility and whether or not we're going to or if it's the right time to start thinking about that in our applications. And it's not about us versus them; it's more of a spectrum. And we can, at various times in our life, fall along that spectrum circumstantially, or like you said, having your eyes dilated, noisy bar. There's so many cases where the technology disables us from doing a certain task absolutely i i just love the way that you you reframed that all right we had to move locations uh so if it sounds different i apologize um that we, we were outside and there was a game of nine square or something, something like, like that, that yeah where a beach ball was being hit in the air and everyone was laughing joyously so um Anyway, we moved, hopefully it's a little bit better. It might be a little bit different right here. Um, but we were talking about accessibility and um, a different way of, of thinking about that and approaching it. And I wanted to ask, um, in your experience, mm-hmm. what are the tools that people should be using to, as a baseline? Maybe we can't do all of it, but like, what are some first steps that we can start doing to introduce um, care and accessibility into our applications today? without having to get sign-off?
1: Without having to get (laughs) sign-off. So to begin with, you can start looking at the plugins for both Chrome and Firefox Mm that uh, DQ put out called Axe. Okay, Uh, That is a beautiful tool for not only showing you what the problems are in your app, but also for explaining why it's a problem and different ways for fixing it. If you use it as an educational tool, you can really dig in and it will explain those things to you. So it's not just a big number that says all these things are wrong. It's a number that also includes why it's wrong, how it's wrong, what yeah. you can do to go from there, which is really nice. Um, that's the first step. Another thing I recommend is a linter. Mm-hmm. You can run the linter just on your system. You can run it globally. You could definitely get it you know, plugged in with the rest of your team, which would be fabulous. <laughs> and essentially what that does is it allows you to Test for those things when you're running your app. I usually use Husky to okay. connect it with webhooks so that I can't uh, push a commit without running through those tests and being approved.
0: Oh, interesting. So Husky is a tool that allows you to do these things at different steps in the dev process. Yes. It's, okay.
1: It's all hooking into those. Okay. You know, commit processes. Oh, awesome! So you can do it on push. You could do it on commit. You can do it on you know, pre-push and production. There's a lot of different things that you can do. So
0: anyone who's using a linter right now and has a process around linting could add some of these accessibility rules to be checked.
1: Yes. So for the web, one of the primary ones is ESLint plugin JSX A11Y. Okay. And for React Native, there's ESLint plugin React Native A11Y as well.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Those would be great because I think a lot of people are probably already using linting Mm -hmm. to be jerks to each other. (laughs) So uh, to be able to uh, kind of pivot that tool into being kind to their customers uh, would be a nice way to uh, repurpose that tool.
1: I like to just plug in prettier and then an accessibility linter and then it fixes everything for me when I need to and then reminds me of things that I've forgotten along the way. Yeah. So those are the ways to at least get it through you. Okay. I mean that's something that you can do as a developer without having to even get bite in from anyone else is make sure that everything you do gets past that linter mm-hmm. and gets checked into X to see if it, you know, complies with all of the various required rules for yeah, yeah, yeah. you know compliance. So, so first,
0: install the Axe plugins in your browser uh-huh. and just incorporate that into your own personal development experience. Yes, right. Second, try to get your team on board, the development team, to be able to add these rules, uh, these ESLint rules that check certain, like kind of low hanging fruit.
1: Right, but you can still install the linter and Mm -hmm. not include your team and just make sure that the linter runs on your own code too. Oh, interesting, okay. So just because it doesn't get incorporated into the team doesn't mean you can't run it against your own code anyway. Awesome. So you may be aware of things that may, you can adjust the rules, it's just a linter. So you can say, I want everything to be warnings just so that I know that they're there and then bump them up very slowly into errors until you get everything fixed. Um. That's all up to you. And it's also up to your team. But you can do that just on your own with your own code before Mm -hmm. you even get that pushed into PR for other people to see. (laughs) It's also something that you can include in your PRs is when they give you something and you see a a valid error, you can say, hey, you know, can we change this div into a button, please? (laughs) Let's stick with semantic HTML. (laughs) (laughs) Those
0: are some fighting words at some companies.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> they're ones that shouldn't be.
0: So now, if we want to we've got those two steps down. If we want to go to that next level and actually start thinking about it from an organizational start thinking about it from an organizational standpoint, what should um, what do you think is the best way to communicate the business value of concerning ourselves with accessibility?
1: So when you're talking about ROI, It gets really messy. People want to know, like, how much am I really going to get back from fixing accessibility bugs, right? If you're looking at the World Trade Organization that says 15% of people are disabled, and you look at the U.S. that says 19% of census owners said that they were disabled, Mm -hmm. you also have to look at the 98-year-old grandmother from my friend (laughs) who said, even though I'm deaf and even though I'm blind... And even though I really can't get around anymore, I'm not disabled. <laughs> so these are conservative yeah. numbers, okay? Yeah. And this is everyone in the U.S. So if you look at just your numbers as far as uh, interaction goes, uh, what if you could up those numbers by 15 to 20%? What if you could get the amount of people buying your product, Increased by 15 to 20%. Yeah. That's a huge number. If you're a $10 million company, that turns you into a $12 million company.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there.
1: Right? Because only about one in 10 websites are accessible, Mm -hmm. which means that if you're one of the accessible websites, you're not just increasing your group of people by. 15 or 20%. You're taking 15 or 20% of the entire market which could be bigger than your entire base in general. Yeah. So, it could be a huge increase. And not only that, but then you're also looking at everyone else who benefits from those features as well. Yeah. The fascinating thing about accessibility is it kind of returns you back to that semantic HTML functionality uh-huh. and having to write things a little bit more simply and a little bit better flow-wise, which means that everyone gets through your your uh, funnel much faster uh-huh. and much easier. And it's something that ends up being left out of a lot of, flows when people don't take that into consideration.
0: So I can't remember where it was, but I remember seeing a tweet of sorts where someone was saying like the the goal of all of the aria documentation is to encourage you to use the semantic elements mm-hmm. and avoid all of this stuff at all costs.
1: Yes. It is it's actually really complicated when you sit down to read it. And part of it is that I mean it shouldn't be complicated. Yeah. But If you have to start thinking about all of these use cases, Uh for instance, if you use a div instead of a button, since I brought that up before.
0: (laughs) This seems to be some of that low-hanging fruit.
1: It is absolutely (laughs) low-hanging fruit. But did you know that on certain iPhone devices, if you do not change the cursor of a div, it doesn't detect it as a button, even if you have all the on clicks and everything else. So you have to take into account... Everything from you have to have hover states and on-click states and you have to have the ability to tab through. So you're looking at tab indexes as well and you're looking at making sure that um, when you're tabbing through that the highlighting surrounding these buttons are also available. It's so much more complicated to make a div accessible than it is to make a button look like a div. Like Seriously, (laughs) just use a button. But then also having to know things like (laughs) if you don't change the pointer to a cursor that you can't use it on half of iPhone devices, that's pretty ridiculous. Like That's a lot you have to keep track of.
0: And something you wouldn't know to test. And so Mm -hmm. your users are figuring that out for you.
1: Oh, yes. And they are not (laughs) happy. There's that. But then if you turn around and use semantic HTML as it's meant to be used, Mm -hmm. then those problems just go away. Like yeah. everything becomes easier. Highlighting becomes easier. Someone's saying, you know what, I would like keyboard navigation. Well, good. Everything we have is actually semantic HTML. You can tab through it without adding a single tab index. Yeah, You know, making sure that the elements are tabbed through in the order in which they're listed on the page mm-hmm. means that things aren't jumping around Yeah, when you're trying to arrange things. So cool. it's important to... Just test it. Just tab through your page, people. Seriously.
0: <laughs> Ryan and I were trying to sign into the Wi-Fi here at the hotel. And the form, it was like, he was like, what what the heck is the tab on this? Because he was on the the first name tab. And then it went down to like another form that was like the, the alternate way to sign in if you had an account or something like that. Uh-huh. And then it went to the back button and then it went to last name.
1: Oh my God.
0: And we realized that it was presumably because they were using floats. And so, last name was like floating after the first name. And then, anyway,
1: put your chaos. forms in order, and then you can position it after that. Yeah. Oh my goodness.
0: I know it was really bad, but it was it, it was a good reminder that it is. like you have to go through, you have to use it, you have to try it in the way that you expect someone using it from a keyboard or whatever means that mm-hmm. it is. Um, you have to actually do that. You can't just assume.
1: Absolutely. How often, I mean, and the answer is not very often, but did you realize that when you turn on a screen reader and you tab over to a button, if you have it say button value button, Mm -hmm. then when they tab over to it, it says button value button, which is great. Except what is this button? Is it a cancel button? Is it a submit button? Is it a click here to see this flashy thing that you really don't want button? I don't know. It's a button value button. be descriptive when you go in there to put that information. It's not just being able to tab through, it's also understanding the context of what it is you're hovering on. So, <laughs> it's things that you don't know unless you go through and test. Yeah. However, I have issues with disability days where people say, "Okay, we're all going to go put on the goggles and the gloves and try things out." Yeah. Like it's really fascinating to have that problem mm-hmm. to stumble through that form that has really bad z-and or, you know, tab indexes. Mm-hmm but it's another thing to sit down with those gloves and those goggles and fight through the process. Yeah. Because that's not your everyday. Yeah. That's just today. That puts a lot more pressure on you than it necessarily does on people whose day-to-day is listening to screen readers or tapping yeah. through the keyboard. The best way to test those is to have someone whose day-to-day is those things <laughs> come in and use their your website and then listen to where they swear. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, this has been amazingly educational for me. Is there any closing wisdom that you have for us
1: when thinking about accessibility uh-huh. and thinking about programming and thinking about the ways the programming has evolved and the ways that accessibility has evolved to something that's been important lately? I want you to keep in mind that changing your frame of mind, changing your perspective makes all the difference. Mm. Sometimes it just takes knitters at a React conference. <laughs> to change people's minds about the origins of programming.
0: Well, thank you. I can't tell you how much I value your presence in our community, pushing those conversations, talking about inclusion and accessibility, and just making sure that people feel welcome and have a space that feels comfortable to them. Um, I, I absolutely think this conference is so much better for you just being you and making this this fun fabric, or did I get fiber arts?
1: Fiber arts. I
0: almost, I'm learning. <laughs> uh, just getting this fiber arts thing um, started and just having really great conversations and informing me about some things that I didn't know.
1: Thank you so much. <laughs> Very sweet words. And I'm glad to have gotten to be here too.
0: I love it. Do you feel good? Yes. Good.
1: I lived. I don't sound like me, but that's okay.
0: (laughs) I think you sound great. Oh, God. Thanks for listening to this episode of React Podcast. For notes and links, visit reactpodcast.com slash 34. And also, Happy New Year. This is our first episode of the show, and I can't tell you how excited I am about the places we'll take it in 2019. To show your support for the show and what we're doing, visit reactpodcast.com slash partner and help us out by choosing a Patreon plan. My big goal for 2019 is to provide episode transcripts. I would love to be able to do that through listener support instead of loading the episode up with a bunch of additional ads. So if you have a couple dollars every month and can help the show out, I think that readers would really enjoy access to this podcast. That's all for this week. Next week, we have an amazing episode with Matt Perry talking about his library, Poser, and animating declaratively in React.